Hello, and welcome to Sleep By Sci-Fi. Sci-Fi, you can sleep by. My name is Brian Woodruff. I will be taking you through a story today, uh, or over the next numerous attempts for you to sleep. Although, I have to say, if you enjoy a relaxing voice and some interesting science fiction, you don't need to fall asleep to this. It's just an option. Uh, I have been told in the past that my voice uh, can put people to sleep, and you know what? Maybe it's about time I start using that talent for the good of others. Uh, today I would like to cover a story that has been very near and dear to my heart for decades. Uh, it's by the amazing E.M. Foster. Forster, pardon me. Ian Forster uh, wrote this story in, if you could believe it, 1909. Uh, it was initially published in the Oxford and Cambridge Review, and that eventually was republished in Forster's The Eternal Moment and Other Stories in 1928. Now, the purpose of this podcast, again, is to try to give you a bit of a ambient sound in the background. And provide a story that uh, drifts you off into sleep. Hopefully some of these interesting science fiction tropes and concepts will follow you in there and you'll have very interesting dreams. Uh, that's, uh, that's the focus. Uh, the story in particular is actually the novella uh, being voted one of the best novellas up until 1965. It is a very interesting story about humanity, technology, and really foreshadows some of the strangeness that we get to experience in our own modern lives. And you have to remember again, these ideas were fluttering around in this man's head a long time ago. It is eerie how close he got in some aspects even if others are perhaps a bit uh, a bit less true <laughs> what are we supposed to say in any case um, the story is called The Machine Stops and it's set in this very different world where people are living below the ground in these beehive-like chambers, uh, these bunkers, these vaults that spread out across the world. Now, people can travel, but it's grown to a state where it's not really needed. And we see a lot of the character development here, particularly in the one of the two main characters, Vashti. Uh, we see her development uh, really through a resistance to interacting with others. It's uh, something that I found profound when I first read it, and uh, find it even more relevant today than I think when uh, I first came upon it many years ago. So, let's take a little stroll into that world, shall we? Um, I will be separating this into three parts, each of them about 30 minutes. Um, and then also releasing a full cut in case people are interested in uh, background sound that 
lasts for longer. Um, let me know what you think. Uh, thank you very much for joining me in this experience, and uh, I hope you have wonderful dreams ahead. Five, four, three, two, one. Here we go. Chapter One of The Machine Stops The Airship. Imagine, if you can, a small room, hexagonal in shape, like the cell of a bee. It is lighted neither by window nor by lamp, yet it is filled with a soft radiance. There are no apertures for ventilation, yet the air is fresh. There are no musical instruments, and yet, at the moment, meditation opens. This room is throbbing with melodious sounds. An armchair is in the center, by its side, a reading desk that is all the furniture. And in the armchair there sits a swaddled lump of flesh, a woman about five feet high, with a face as white as fungus. It is to her that the little room belongs. An electric bell rang. The woman touched a switch and the music was silent. I suppose I must see who it is, she thought, and set her chair in motion. The chair, like the music, was worked by machinery, and it rolled her to the other side of the room, where the bell still rang importunately. Who is it? she asked. Her voice was irritable, for she had been interrupted often since the music began. She knew several thousand people. In certain directions, human intercourse had advanced enormously. But when she listened into the receiver, her white face wrinkled in his smiles, and she said, Very well, let us talk. I will isolate myself. I do not expect anything important will happen for the next five minutes. For I can give you fully five minutes, Kuno. Then I must deliver my lecture on music during the Australian period. She touched the isolation knob so that no one else could speak to her. Then she touched the lighting apparatus, and the little room was plunged into darkness. Be quiet! Be quick! she called, her irritation returning. Be quick, Kuno! Here I am in the dark, wasting my time. But it was fully fifteen seconds before the round plate that she held in her hands began to glow. A faint blue light shot across it, darkening to purple, and presently she could see the image of her son, who lived on the other side of the earth, and he could see her. Kuno, how slow you are! He smiled gravely. I really believe you enjoy dawdling. I have called you before, mother, but you are always busy or isolated. I have something particular to say. What is it, dearest boy? Be quick. Why could you not send it by a nomadic post? Because I prefer saying such a thing. I want, well, I want to come. I want you to come and see me. Vashti watched his face in the blue plate. But I can see you, she exclaimed. What more do you want? 
I want to see you not through the machine, said Kuno. I want to speak to you not through a wearisome machine. Oh, hush, the mother, said the mother, vaguely shocked. You mustn't say anything against the machine. Why not? You, one mustn't. You talk as if a god had made the machine, cried the other. I believe that you pray to it when you are unhappy. Men made it, do not forget that. Great men, but men. The machine is much, but it's not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I hear something like you through the telephone, but I do not hear you. That is why I want you to come. Pay me a visit so that we can meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. She replied that she could scarcely spare the time for a visit. The airship barely takes two days to fly between you and me. I dislike airships. Why? I dislike seeing the horrible brown earth and the sea and the stars when it is dark. I get no ideas in airships. I do not get them anywhere else. What kind of ideas can the air give you? He paused for an instant. Do you not know four big stars that form an oblong and three stars close enough in the middle of the oblong and hanging from these stars, three other stars? No, I do not. I just like the stars. But give, but did they give you an idea? How interesting. Tell me. I had an idea that they were like man. I do not understand. The four big stars are the man's shoulders and his knees. The three stars in the middle are like the belt that man once wore. And the three stars hanging are like a sword. A sword? Men carried stores about with them to kill animals and other men. It does not strike me as a very good idea, but it is certainly original. When did it come to you first? In the airship, he broke off, and she fancied that he looked sad. She could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people as an idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom declared by a discredited philosophy to be the actual essence of intercourse was rightly ignored by the machine. But as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit, something good enough had long since been accepted by our race. The truth is, he continued, that I want to see these stars again. They are curious stars. I want you to see them not from the airship, but from the surface of the earth, as our ancestors did thousands of years ago. I want to visit the surface of the earth. She was shocked again. Mother, you must come, if only to explain to me what is the harm of visiting the surface of the earth. No harm, she replied, controlling herself, but no advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No life remains on it. And you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One dies immediately in the outer air. 
I know, of course I shall take precautions. And besides, well, she considered and chose her words with care. Her son had a queer temper, and she wished to dissuade him from the expedition. It is contrary to the spirit of the age, she asserted. Do you mean by that contrary to the machine? In a sense, but his image is the blue plate faded. Kuno, he had isolated himself. For a moment Vashti felt lonely, but then she generated the light and the sight of her room, flooded with radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere, buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was the hot bath button, by the pressure of which a basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the brim with warm, deodorized liquid. There was cold bath button. There was a procedure to produce literature. There were, of course, buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though, it contained nothing was in touch with all that she cared in the world. Vashti's next move was to turn off the isolation switch, and all the accumulations of the last three minutes burst upon her. The room was filled with the noise of bells and speaking tubes. What was the new food like? Could she recommend it? Has she had any ideas lately? Might one tell her her own ideas? Would she make an engagement to visit the public nurseries at an earlier date? Say the date, say the month. To most of these questions, she replied with irritation at growing quality as accelerated by age. She said that the new food was horrible, that she could not visit the public nurseries through press of engagements, that she had no ideas of her own, but that she had been told one, that four stars and three in the middle were like a man. She doubted there was much to it, but she said it all the same. Then she switched off, her, switched off her correspondence, for it was time to deliver her lecture on Australian music. The clumsy system of public gatherings had been made long since abandoned. Neither Vashti nor her audience stirred from their rooms, seated in their armchairs as she spoke, while they in their armchairs heard her fairly and well and saw her fairly well. She opened with a humorous account of music in pre-Mongolian epoch, and went on to describe the great outbursts of songs that follow the Chinese conquest. Remote and primeval as they were in the methods of Ai Sanso and the Brisbane School. She had felt, she said, the study of them might repay the musicians of today. They had freshness, they had above all, ide all else ideas. Her lecture, which lasted ten minutes, was well received, and in its conclusion she and many of her audience listened to a lecture on the sea. There were ideas to be got from the sea, and the speaker had donned a respirator and visited it lately. Then she fed, talked to many friends, had a bath, talked again, and summoned her bed. The bed was not to her liking. It was too large, and she had a feeling, a need for a smaller bed. Complaint was useless for beds were of the same dimension all over the world, and to have an alternative size would have involved a vast alterations in the machine. Vashti isolated herself. It was necessary, for neither day nor night existed under the ground, and reviewed all that had happened since she had first summoned the bed last. Ideas, scarcely any, 
events? Was Kuno's invitation an event? By her side, on the little reading desk, was a survival from the ages of Litter One books. This was the book of the machine. In it were instructions against every possible contingency. If she was hot or cold or despotic or had a loss for word, she went to the book and had told her which button to press. The Central Committee published it in accordance with a growing habit, and it was richly bound. Sitting up in the bed, she took it reverently in her hands. She glanced around the glowing room as if someone might be watching her. Then half ashamed, half joyful, she murmured, Oh, machine, and raised the volume to her lips. Thrice she kissed it, thrice inclined her head, thrice she felt the delirium of acquiescence. Her ritual performed, she turned to page 1367 which gave the times of departure of airships from the island in the southern hemisphere, under whose soil she lived, to the island in the northern hemisphere, where under her lived her son. She thought, I have not that time. She made the room dark and slept. She awoke and made the room light. She exchanged ideas with her friends and listened to music and attended lectures. She made the room dark and slept. Above her, beneath her, and around her, the machine hummed eternally. She did not notice a noise, for she had been born with it in her ears. The earth carrying her hummed as it sped through silence, turning her now to the invisible sun, now to invisible stars. She awoke and made the room light. Kuno, I will not talk to you, he answered, until you come. Have you been on the surface of the earth since we last spoke? His image faded. Again she consulted the book. She became very nervous and lay back in her chair, palpitating, thinking of her as without teeth or hair. Presently she directed the chair to the wall, pressed an unfamiliar button. The wall swung apart slowly. Through the opening she saw a tunnel that curved slightly, so that its goal was not visible. Should she go see her son? Here was the beginning of her journey. Of course, she knew all about the communication system. There was nothing mysterious in it. She would summon a car and it would fly her with her down a tunnel until it reached that lift that communicated with the airship. The system had been in use for many, many years, long before the universal establishment of the machine. And of course, she had studied the civilizations that had immediately preceded her own civilizations that had mistaken the functions of the system and used it for bringing people to things instead of bringing things to people. Those funny old days when men went for change of air instead of changing the air of their rooms. And yet, she was frightened of the tunnel. She had not seen it since her last child was born. It curved, but not quite as she remembered. It was brilliant, but not quite as brilliant as the lecturer had suggested. Vashti was seized with terrors of direct experience. She shrank back into the room and the wall closed up again. Kuno, she said, I cannot come to see you. I am not well. Immediately an enormous apparatus fell onto her out of the ceiling. A thermometer was automatically laid upon her heart. She lay powerless. Cool pads soothed her forehead. Kuno had telegraphed to the doctor. So the human passion still blundered up and down in the machine. 
Boshley drank the medicine and the doctor projected into her mouth, and the machine retired into the ceiling. The voice of the Kuno of Kuno was heard asking how she felt. Better than with irritation. But why do you not come to me instead? Because I cannot leave this place. Why? Because any moment something tremendous may happen. Have you been on the surface of the earth yet? Not yet. Then what is it? I will not tell you through the machine. She resumed her life, but she thought of Kuno as a baby, his birth, his removal to the public nurseries, her own visit to him there, his visits to her, visits which stopped when the machine had assigned him a room on the other side of the earth. Parents, duties of, the, said the machine, the book of the machine, ceased at the moment of birth. Page 4223-27483. True, but there was something special about Kuno indeed. There had always been something special about all her children. And after all, she must brave the journey if he desired it. And something tremendous might happen. What did that mean? The nonsense of a youthful man, no doubt, but she must go. Again she pressed the unfamiliar button. Again the wall swung open, and she saw the tunnel that curves out of sight. Clasping the book, she rose, tottered onto the platform, and summoned the car. Her room closed behind her. The journey to the northern hemisphere had begun. Of course, it was perfectly easy. The car approached, and in it she found armchairs exactly like her own. When she signaled, it stopped, and she tottered it into the lift. One other passenger was in the lift, the first fellow creature she had seen face to face for months. Few traveled in these days, for, thanks to the advance of science, the earth was exactly alike all over. Rapid intercourse, from which the previous civilization hoped so much, had ended by defeating itself. What was good of going to Peking when it was like Shrewsbury? Why return to Shrewsbury when it would be all like Peking? Men seldom moved into bodies. All unrest was concentrated in the soul. The airship service was a relic form of the former age. It was kept up because it was easier to keep it up than it was to stop it or diminish it. But now far exceeded the wants of the population. Vessel after vessel would rise from the vomitories of Rye or of Christchurch, I use the antiquated names, would sail into the crowded sky and would draw up the wharves of the South Empty. So nicely adjusted was the system, so independent of meteorology, that the sky, whether calm or cloudy, resembled a vast kaleidoscope, whereupon the same patterns periodically reoccurred. The ship on which Vashti sailed started now at sunset, now at dawn, but always as it passed above rays, it would neighbor the ship that served between Hellas Forest and Brazil's, and every third time it surmounted the Alps, the fleet of Palermore would cross its tracks behind. Night and day, wind and storm, tide and earthquake impended man no longer. He had harvest, harnessed Leviathan. All the old literature, with its praise of nature and its fear of nature, rang false as the prattle of a child. Yet as Vashti saw the vast flank of the ship stained with exposure to the outer air, her horror of direct experience returned. It was not quite like the airship in the cinematophote. For one thing, it smelt not strongly or unpleasantly, but it did smell. 
and with her eyes shut she should have known what a new thing was close to her. Then, then, they stopped the thing that was unforeseen, and man, instead of picking up his property, felt the muscles of his arm to see how they had failed him. Then someone actually said the direct utterance, we shall be late, and they trooped on board, Vashti treading on the pages as she did so. Inside, her anxiety increased. The arrangements were old-fashioned and rough. There was even a female attendant to whom she would have to announce her wants during the voyage. Of course, a revolving platform ran the length of the boat, but she was expected to walk from it to her cabin. Some cabins were better than others, and she did not get the best. She thought the attendant had been unfair, and the spasms of rage shook her. The glass valves had closed, and she could not go back. She saw at the end of the vestibule the lift in which she had ascended going quietly up and down, empty. Beneath those corridors of shining tiles were rooms, tier below tier, reaching far into the earth. In each room there was a human being eating or sleeping, producing ideas, and buried deep in the hive was her own room. Vashti was afraid. Oh, machine, she murmured and caressed her book, and that was comforted. Then the sides of the vestibule seemed to melt together as do the passages that we see in dreams. The lift vanished, the book that had been dropped slid and left and vanished. Polished tiles rushed by like a stream of water. There was a slight jar, and the airship, issuing from its tunnel, soared above the waters of tropical ocean. It was night. For a moment she saw the coast of Sumantra edged by the phosphorescence of waves and crowned by lighthouses, still sending forth their disregarded beams. These also vanished, and only the stars distracted her. They were not motionless, but swayed to and fro above her head, thronging out of one skylight into another, as if the universe and not the airship was careening. And as often happens, one on clear nights, they seem now to be in perspective, now a plane, now piled tier beyond tier into the infinite heavens, now concealing infinity, a roof limiting forever the visions of men. In either case, they seemed intolerable. Are we going to travel in the dark? She called the passengers angrily, and the attendant who had been careless generated the light and pulled down the blinds of pliable metal. When the airship had been built, the desire looked direct at things to lingered in the world. Hence the extraordinary number of skylights and windows and proportionate discomfort to those who were civilized and refined. Even as Vashti's cabin, one star peeped through a flaw in the blind, and after a few hours of uneasy slumber, she was disturbed by an unfamiliar glow, which was the dawn. Quick as the ship had sped westwards, the earth, the earth had rolled eastwards quicker still, and had dragged back Vashti and her companions towards the sun. Science could prolong the night, but only for a little, and those high hopes of neutralizing Earth's diurnal revolution had passed, together with the hopes that there were possibly something higher to attend to. To keep pace with the sun, or even outstrip it, had been the aim of civilization preceding this. Racing airplanes had been built for the purpose, capable of enormous speed, and steered by the greatest intellects of the epoch, 
round the globe they went, round and round, westward, westward, round and round, amid humanity's applause. In vain, the globe went eastward quicker still, horrible accidents occurred, and the committee of the machine, at the time rising to promise, declared the pursuit illegal, unmechanical, and punishable by homelessness. Of homelessness, more will be said later. Doubtless the committee was right, yet the attempt to defeat the sun aroused the last common interest that our human race experienced about heavenly bodies, or indeed about anything. It was the last time that men were compacted by thinking of a power outside the world. The sun had conquered, yet it was the end of his spiritual dominion. Dawn, midday, twilight, and zodiacal path, touched by neither men's lives nor their hearts, the science retreated to the ground to concentrate herself upon problems that she was certain of solving. So when Vashti found her cabin invaded by a rosy finger of light, she was annoyed and tried to adjust the blind, but the blind flew up altogether, and she saw through the skylight small pink clouds swaying against a background of blue. And as the sun crept higher, its radiance entered direct, bring, brimming down the wall like a golden sea. It rose and fell with the airship's motions, just as waves rise and fall, but it advanced steadily as tide advances. Unless she was careful, he would strike her face. A spasm of horror shook her, and she rang for the attendant. The attendant, too, was horrified, but she could do nothing. It was not her place to mend the blind. She could only suggest that the lady should change her cabin, which she accordingly prepared to do. People were almost exactly alike all over the world, but the attempt at the airship, perhaps owing to her exceptional duties, had grown a little out of the common. She had often to address passengers with direct speech, and this had given her a certain roughness about their originality of manner. When Vashti swerved away from the sunbeams, the cry, she behaved barbarically by putting her hand out to steady her. How dare you, exclaimed the passenger. You forget yourself. The woman, confused, apologized for having not let her fall. People never touched one another. The custom had become obsolete, owing to the machine. Where are we now? asked Vashti. Hately. We are all over Asia, said the attendant, anxious to be polite. Asia? You must excuse my common way of speaking. I've got into a habit of common places over which I pass by their unmechanical names. Oh, I remember Asia. The Mongols came from it. Beneath us, in the open air, stood a city that was once called Simla. Have you ever heard of Mongols in the Brisbane school? No. Brisbane also stood in the open air. Those mountains to the right, let me show you them. She pushed back a metal blind. The main chain of Himalayas was revealed. They were once called the roof of the world, those mountains. You must remember that before the dawn of civilization, they seemed to be an impenetrable wall that touched the stars. It was supposed that no one but the gods could exist above their summits. How we have advanced thanks to the machine. How we have advanced, thanks to the machine, said Vashti. How we have advanced, thanks to the machine, echoed the passenger who had dropped his book the night before and who was standing in the passage. And that white stuff in the cracks, what is it? I've forgotten its name. Cover the window, please. These mountains give me no ideas. 
The northern aspect of the Himalayas was a deep shadow. On the Indian slope, the sun had just prevailed. The forests had been destroyed during the literature epoch for the purpose of making newspaper pulp. But the snow wolves were awakening to the morning glory. The clouds still hung on the breast of the mountains. In the plain were the ruins of cities with diminished rivers creeping by their walls. And by the sides of these were sometimes the signs of vomitories marking the cities of the day. Over the whole prospect airships rushed, crossing intercrossings with the incredible uplum and rising nonchalantly when they desired to escape the perturbation of the lower atmosphere and to transfer transverse the roof of the world. We have indeed advanced, thanks to the machine, said the intendant, and his the Himalayas behind, and hid the Himalayas behind a middle blind. The day dragged weirdly forward. The passengers each sat in his in their cabins, avoiding one another with almost physical repulsion and longing to once more be beneath the surface of the earth. There were eight or ten of them, mostly young males, set out from the public nurseries to inhabit the rooms of those who had died in various parts of the earth. The man who had dropped his book was on a homeward journey. He had been sent to Sumatra for the purpose of propagating the race. Vashti alone was traveling by her private will. At midday, she took a second glance at the earth. The airship was crossing another range of mountains, but she could see little owing to the clouds. Masses of black rock hovered below her and merged indistinctly into gray. Their shapes were fantastic. One of them resembled a prostrate man. No ideas here, murmured Vashti, and hid the, the caucus behind a metal blind. In the evening, she looked again. They were crossing a golden sea in which may lie many islands and even one peninsula. She repeated, no ideas here. And in it, she hid Greece behind the metal blinds once more.